0: Chapter twenty one of Martin Eden by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty one came a beautiful fall day, warm and languid, palpitant with the hush of the changing season, a California Indian summer day, with hazy sun and wandering wisps of breeze that did not stir the slumber of the air, filmy purple mists that were not vapors but fabrics woven of color. Hid the recesses of the hills San Francisco lay like a blur of smoke under her heights the intervening bay was a dull sheen of molten metal whereon sailing craft lay motionless or drifted with the lazy tide far Tamalpais barely seen in the silver haze bulked hugely by the golden gate the latter a pale gold pathway under the westering sun beyond the Pacific dim and vast was raising on its skyline tumbled cloud-masses that swept landward, giving warning of the first blustering breath of winter. The erasure of summer was at hand, yet summer lingered, fading and fainting among her hills, deeping the purple of her valleys, spinning a shroud of haze from waning powers and sated raptures, dying with the calm content of having lived and lived well. And among the hills, on their favorite knoll, Martin and Ruth sat side by side, their heads bent over the same pages, he reading aloud from the love-sonnets of the woman who had loved Browning, as it is given to few men to be loved. But the reading languished. The spell of passing beauty all about them was too strong. The golden year was dying as it had lived, a beautiful and unrepentant voluptuary. The reminiscent rapture and content freighted heavily the air. It entered into them, dreamy and languorous, weakening the fibers of resolution, suffusing the face of morality or of judgment with haze and purple mist. Martin felt tender and melting, and from time to time warm glows passed over him. His head was very near to hers, and when wandering phantoms of breeze stirred her hair so that it touched his face, the printed pages swam before his eyes. I don't believe you know a word of what you are reading," she said once, when he had lost his place. He looked at her with burning eyes, and was on the verge of becoming awkward when a retort came to his lips. I don't believe you know either. What was that last sonnet about? I don't know, she laughed frankly. I've already forgotten. Don't let us read any more. The day is too beautiful. It will be our last in the hills for some time, he announced gravely. There's a storm gathering out there on the sea rim." The book slipped from his hands to the ground, and they sat idly and silently, gazing out over the dreamy bay with eyes that dreamed and did not see. Ruth glanced sidewise at his neck. She did not lean toward him. She was drawn by some force outside of herself, and stronger than gravitation, strong as destiny. It was only an inch to lean and it was accomplished without volition on her part. Her shoulder touched his as lightly as a butterfly touches a flower, and just as lightly was the counter-pressure. She felt his shoulder press hers, and a tremor run through him. Then was the time for her to draw back, but she had become an automaton. Her actions had passed beyond the control of her will. She never thought of control or will in the delicious madness that was upon her. His arm began to steal behind her and around her. She waited its slow progress in a torment of delight. She waited she knew not for what, panting with dry, burning lips, a leaping pulse, and a fever of expectancy in all her blood. The girdling arm lifted higher and drew her toward him, drew her slowly and caressingly. She could wait no longer. With a tired sigh and with an impulsive movement all her own, unpremeditated, spasmodic, she rested her head upon his breast. His head bent over swiftly, and, as his lips approached, hers flew to meet them. This must be love, she thought, in the one rational moment that was vouchsafed her. If it was not love, it was too shameful. It could be nothing else than love. She loved the man whose arms were around her and whose lips were pressed to hers. She pressed more, tightly to him, with a snuggling movement of her body. And a moment later, tearing herself half out of his embrace, suddenly and exultantly she reached up and placed both hands upon Martin Eden's sunburnt neck. So exquisite was the pang of love and desire fulfilled that she uttered a low moan, relaxed her hands and lay half swooning in his arms. Not a word had been spoken, and not a word was spoken for a long time. Twice he bent and kissed her, and each time her lips met his shyly, and her body made its happy, nestling movement. She clung to him, unable to release herself, and he sat, half supporting her in his arms, as he gazed with unseeing eyes at the blur of the great city across the bay. For once there were no visions in his brain. Only colors and lights and glows pulsed there, warm as the day, and warm as his love. He bent over her. She was speaking. When did you love me? she whispered. From the first, the very first, the first moment I laid eye on you. I was mad for love of you then, and in all the time that has passed since then. I have only grown the madder. I am maddest now, dear. I am almost a lunatic. My head is so turned with joy." "'I am glad I am a woman, Martin, dear,' she said, after a long sigh. He crushed her in his arms again and again, and then he asked, "'And you, when did you first know?' "'Oh, I knew all the time, almost, from the first. "'And I have been as blind as a bat,' he cried, a ring of vexation in his voice. I never dreamed it until just now, when I—when I kissed you. I didn't mean that. She drew herself partly away and looked at him. I meant I knew you loved, almost from the first. And you? he demanded. It came to me suddenly. She was speaking very slowly, her eyes warm and fluttery and melting, a soft flush on her cheeks that did not go away. I never knew until just now when— you put your arms around me. And I never expected to marry you, Martin, not until just now. How did you make me love you? I don't know, he laughed, unless just by loving you, for I loved you hard enough to melt the heart of a stone, much less the heart of the living, breathing woman you are. This is so different from what I thought love would be, she announced irrelevantly. What did you think it would be like? I didn't think it would be like this, she was looking into his eyes at the moment, but her own dropped as she continued. You see, I didn't know what this was like. He offered to draw her toward him again, but it was no more than a tentative muscular movement of the girdling arm, for he feared that he might be greedy. Then he felt her body yielding, and once again she was close in his arms, and lips were pressed on lips. What will my people say? she queried, with sudden apprehension, in one of the pauses. I don't know. We can find out very easily any time we are so minded. But if Mama objects, I am sure I am afraid to tell her. Let me tell her, he volunteered valiantly. I think your mother does not like me, but I can win her around. A fellow who can win you can win anything, and if we don't. Yes. Why, we'll have each other. And there's no danger not winning your mother to our marriage. She loves you too well. I should not like to break her heart, Ruth said pensively. He felt like assuring her that mother's hearts were not so easily broken. But instead, he said, and love is the greatest thing in the world. Do you know, Martin, you sometimes frighten me. I am frightened now, when I think of you and of what you have been. You must be very, very good to me. Remember, after all, that I am only a child I never loved before. Nor I. We are both children together, and we are fortunate above most, for we have found our first love in each other. But that is impossible, she cried, withdrawing herself from his arms with a swift, passionate movement. Impossible for you. You have been a sailor, and sailors I have heard are—are— are... Her voice faltered and died away are addicted to having a wife in every port, he suggested. Is that what you mean?" Yes. She answered in a low voice. But that is not love. He spoke authoritatively. I have been in many ports, but I never knew a passing touch of love until I saw you that first night. Do you know, when I said good-night and went away, I was almost arrested? Arrested? Yes. The policeman thought I was drunk and i was too with love for you but you said we were children and i said it was impossible for you and we have strayed away from the point i said i never loved anybody but you he replied you are my first my very first and yet you have been a sailor she objected but that doesn't prevent me from loving you the first and there have been women other women oh and to Martin Eden's supreme surprise she burst into a storm of tears that took more kisses than one and many caresses to drive away. And all the while there was running through his head Kipling's line. And the Colonel's Lady and Judy O'Grady are sisters under the skins. It was true, he decided, though the novels he had read had led him to believe otherwise. His idea, for which the novels were responsible, had been that only formal proposals obtained in the upper classes. It was all right enough, down whence he had come, for youths and maidens to win each other by contact. But for the exalted personages up above, on the heights, to make love in similar fashion had seemed unthinkable. Yet the novels were wrong. Here was a proof of it. The same pressures and caresses, unaccompanied by speech, that were efficacious with the girls of the working class were equally efficacious with the girls above the working class. They were all of the same flesh after all, sisters under their skins, and he might have known as much himself had he remembered his Spencer. As he held Ruth in his arms and soothed her, he took great consolation in the thought that the Colonel's lady and Judy O'Grady were pretty much alike under their skins. It brought Ruth closer to him, made her possible. Her dear flesh was as anybody's flesh, as his flesh. There was no bar to their marriage. Class difference was the only difference, and class was extrinsic. It could be shaken off. A slave, he had read, had risen to the Roman purple. That being so, then he could rise to Ruth. Under her purity and saintliness and culture, and ethereal beauty of soul, she was, in things fundamentally human. Just like Lizzie Connolly and all Lizzie Connollys. All that was possible of them was possible of her. She could love and hate, maybe half hysterics, and she could certainly be jealous as she was jealous now, uttering her last sobs in his arms. Besides, I am older than you, she remarked suddenly, opening her eyes and looking at him. Three years older. Hush, you are only a child and I am forty years older than you, in experience," was his answer. In truth, they were children together, so far as love was concerned, and they were as naive and immature in the expression of their love as a pair of children, and this despite the fact that she was crammed with a university education, and that his head was full of scientific philosophy and the hard facts of life. They sat on through the passing glory of the day, talking as lovers are prone to talk, marvelling at the wonder of love, and at destiny that had flung them so strangely together, and dogmatically believing that they loved to a degree never attained by lovers before. And they returned insistently, again and again, to a rehearsal of their first impressions of each other, and to hopeless attempts to analyze just precisely what they felt for each other, and how much there was of it. The cloud-masses on the western horizon received the descending sun, and the circle of sky turned to rose, where the zenith glowed with the same warm color. The rosy light was all about them, flooding over them as she sang, Good-bye, sweet day. She sang softly, leaning in the cradle of his arm, her hands in his, their hearts in each other's hands. End of chapter 21.